Seated. It's funny, as I was opening my Bible, I instinctively turned to Galatians, because of course we've been going through Galatians for some time now, but uh, we're starting a new book today. We are, um, we are going to be looking this morning at 1 Kings. Now, why 1 Kings? Well, why not? It's in the Bible, isn't it? No, anyway. Um, actually, there's, there's more reason uh, that I picked it than just that it's in the Bible, um, and that I haven't preached on it before. But... I wanted to go through the book of 1 Kings with you because I find that while people tend to be very conversant, at least many Christians tend to be very conversant with the life of David, they are less familiar with the lives of the kings that came afterwards that are detailed in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And so I want us to be familiar with, uh, with what happens there as well because there are lessons uh, that we can learn. Also because 1 and 2 Kings, uh, although um, what I'm going to be doing is I'll be preaching through 1 Kings, we'll do a book of the New Testament, and then we'll go on to 2 Kings. We're not just going to preach through both books. Um, it's our, our desire that uh, while we're in a uh, book of the Old Testament in the morning, say, in the evening, that we would be in the book of the New Testament, and then to switch back and forth and so on. So we're getting both, uh, both sides, uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're getting both uh, in us and going over them. But uh, today we're going to be starting, as I said, First Kings and getting a, a glimpse of what happened after the reign of David, what happened after David and Goliath and all of those wonderful stories from First and Second Samuel were long in the past. Uh, hopefully we'll grow in grace together and we'll learn a lot about uh, Israel and we'll have a chance to reflect on the way that the Lord works with people, families, and nations. But um, before we turn our attention to First Kings, let's turn our attention to the Lord who gave it to us and let's ask for his help and understanding. Sovereign Lord, as today we begin to look at the book of First Kings, I pray, Lord, that you would be the inner light that helps us to understand we remember that your son, our Savior Jesus, said to the Jews in his day that they searched the scriptures looking to find life in them, but they didn't find it because it was to be found in him. He is the one who's preached in every part of your word. He is present in every part of the Bible just as salt is present in every drop of the sea. So whether we're looking at Genesis or looking at Matthew, whether we're looking, oh Lord, at Revelation or we're looking at Malachi, we should still be seeking to find Christ there, our Savior, the true hero of the Bible and the one we need the most. We pray, therefore, Lord, that you would fill our minds with good things, that you would help us to understand this word, and that we would truly rejoice in it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Also a note, um, after the... Uh, the service, we'll have our, our sermon Q&A. I would invite you to write down if you have questions uh, as they come to mind about what's being preached upon in First Kings. Please write them in this section, in the notes section. Just tear it out, and then we, uh, we have a basket, a brown basket in the back. Go ahead and place your question there, and we will handle it during the Q&A. Or if you are high-tech-ish, you can send it uh, via this wonderful new means called email. Uh, we have an email address... Uh, provquestions at uh, gmail.com. I believe the uh, address is in the back of your folder. Uh, or if not, I'll make sure that it is sometime very soon <laughs> added once again to it. So provquestions at gmail.com will allow you to send your questions uh, via email. 
But now let's turn our attention to the Word of God as we read together. Remind you, this is the Word of the, God, of the Lord who created us and all things. First Kings. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord the King, and let her stand before the King, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the King may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When you pick up a book of the Bible, regardless of where you are in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's always helpful to know certain things about it. Some of the basics that you should know about a book of the Bible as you're reading it are uh, what it's called, uh, why it's called that, who wrote it, uh, when it was written, what the genre is, and what the main message or theme of that particular book is. Uh, I want to go over some of those, those items today before we really get stuck into 1 Kings, so we have an idea of why the book is in the Bible in the first place. First, let's, let's talk about the name of this particular book, 1 Kings. Uh, our Bible, as you know, as you look at it, it has 1 Kings and 2 Kings, but while there's a division between 1 and 2 Kings in our English Bibles, that wasn't the case uh, in the original Hebrew uh, of, this, of this book. It was originally one book, and the original title of the book in Hebrew was Melachim. It means literally kings. Uh, it was taken from the first word uh, of the uh, book, Vachamelech, uh, which means literally now the king. Uh, and the reason that it was split into two books is that the translators of the Septuagint, that is, uh, the Jewish scribes who took the book, um, the, the books of the uh, prophets and the law uh, and the histories and so on, they uh, took the, book and they, the books and they translated them into Greek. These were Jews who were living in Alexandria in Egypt, and they uh, translated the Hebrew into Greek specifically because many of their children growing up in Alexandria, which was a Hellenistic community, they didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't read Hebrew very well. They spoke Greek day to day, and so they needed a Greek version of uh, the Hebrew Bible. And so they created the Septuagint, which comes from the name 70, the number of translators who supposedly worked on it. But what they did was they divided it in half, and the reason was simple, scroll space. It actually takes a lot more scroll space in order to transcribe a book of the Bible in Greek. The reason for that is kind of funny. Hebrew doesn't actually have written consonants, so you save a lot of space. There's no A, E, I, O, U in the uh, written text, whereas in Greek we do have, uh, we have consonants. So it takes up, uh, Greek words tend to take up a lot more space than Hebrew words. So they, uh, they were zealous to be able to write it on two different scrolls, and therefore first and second kings. Um, as for who wrote it, who the original author was, uh, we are not sure. We know that it was an inspired author writing sometime uh, initially before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And then the last two chapters definitely were written after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, ancient Jewish scholars, uh, those who worked on the Talmud, strongly believed that it was the prophet Jeremiah. 
I am not an ancient Jewish scholar, but I, I do, um, I may be ancient, but anyway, uh, I, I do tend to agree. It probably is Jeremiah. It has a Jeremiah-ish uh, tone to it, and the author was clearly a prophet histor slash historian uh, who had a strong emphasis on denouncing apostasy in the kingdom. That's one of the themes that we're going to see in the book coming up again and again and again. The Lord is good, but the people, they are faithless. They keep turning away from him. Both first and second kings, therefore, emphasize God's righteous judgment on idolatry and immorality within the nation. Now, most of the book was clearly written, therefore, before the Babylonian captivity uh, in 586 B.C., However, as I said, the last two chapters of 2 Kings were written after the captivity, um, and it's possible it was written by Jeremiah. He did, uh, he, he did continue to live for a little while after the, uh, the people went into captivity, but it may actually have been put together at that point, compiled by a Jewish captive in Babylon. It doesn't really matter. It's the word of God entire for us, and we know who inspired it. That would be God the Holy Spirit. So the genre also of the book, it's not poetry. Well, let's see if you know. What is the genre of this book? It is, it's history. Very good. And as the name indicates, uh, it takes us through the, name, uh, the reigns of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Now, in saying that, in saying the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, I'm, I'm giving you a spoiler. And I apologize for, uh, it's always Andy ruins the book uh, when, it's, when I'm up here. But um, the book will tell us how the unified kingdom that starts out at the beginning of, of 1 Kings. Uh, this unified kingdom of 12 tribes in the Promised Land was divided in two under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Uh, at that point, we have a division where we have a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which uh, had its capital where? Where was the southern kingdom's capital? We sang about it. Jerusalem, right? Okay, so Jerusalem. Uh, after the division, there's going to be initially... Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, geographically they were in the area of Jerusalem. They were two of the most numerous tribes. But we're going to see another tribe returning almost entirely to Jerusalem, and that is the tribe of Levi, simply because the kings of Israel were going to see wrongly appointed. First, they're going to set up their own places of worship, and then they're going to appoint just anybody who wants to be a priest can be a priest. Now, we all know that the Lord had stated from the very beginning that the high priest would be a descendant of which brother of Moses? Aaron. Aaron, that's correct. And therefore, everybody who was ministering the temple had to come from which tribe? They had to come from the tribe of Levi. Levi. Okay, so Levites. Once the Levites no longer had that special role, once they were no longer being provided for uh, through the offerings of the people, once the priesthood was open to just everybody in the northern kingdom, they had no longer any reason to stay there, no means of, of continuing to minister. So they came south so that they could continue to minister at the temple and to serve the people of Judah. So the Lord preserved, uh, we think of the ten tribes in the north, but actually it's really three tribes in the south and nine tribes in the north. The northern kingdom, uh, which is known as Israel, has its capital at Samaria, uh, and it will be the nine other tribes. Uh, sadly, again, a spoiler, you may look very, very hard. One of the, uh, I shouldn't, well, okay, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. Maybe one day one of you will be taking a presbytery exam and I will throw my standard trick question at you. At the, uh, and you'll know it in advance now because you heard this sermon. My standard trick question is name a good king of the northern kingdom, a good king of Israel. Okay, why is it a trick question? There aren't any. <laughs> okay, so you're not going to, the correct answer is there aren't any. So uh, unfortunately that's going to make the story of the northern kingdom rather sad. But nonetheless, uh, it is still very informative, especially as we see why there were no any, uh, there were not any, I'm, I'm now using Scottish diction, there were no any good kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, so the division between the two kingdoms we'll find in 1 Kings chapter 12. So you got that a little ahead of you. We'll meet a lot of interesting people, obviously, as we go through kings. We will meet, of course, uh, the man who was judged wisest who has ever lived, and that was David's son, King Solomon. That's right. Now, while Solomon was amazingly wise, we'll also learn a lesson, which is you can be very wise and then not listen to your own wisdom. Go against it, and we'll see him doing things that he knew, and in fact even wrote to his own son saying, don't do this, and then did it uh, himself. Uh, We're also going to meet many different prophets, including the two most famous Old Testament prophets, Elijah, and then his uh, apprentice, who eventually becomes an even greater prophet, Elisha. We'll meet a lot of kings, we'll meet a few good kings, we'll meet a lot of wicked kings uh, and queens as well, like Ahab and Jezebel, for instance. We'll also meet foreign rulers, we'll be introduced, uh, for instance, to the Queen of Sheba. We'll meet widows, we'll meet priests, we'll meet little boys and girls, as a matter of fact, and we'll meet a host of everyday people whose names were immortalized by being included in the scriptures. We're going to meet a lot of people and hopefully we'll learn lessons from all of us. But uh, from all of them, rather. So what then does the book of 1 Kings aim to teach us? What is, what is its main theme, its main message? Well, a lot of people have sought to, to give kind of a unified, unified theme. And uh, there are some easy answers that you can immediately come to. I want to show you one of the most common ones when you're reading commentators. Uh, some would say, as did Kenneth Boa and Bruce Wilkinson, as they were writing their commentary on, on this particular book, they said, the theme of First Kings is that the welfare of Israel and Judah depended upon the covenant faithfulness of the people and their king. Certainly that is a theme that we pick up in, in the book. It really is. Russell Dilbe, as he wrote his particular commentary on this book, puts it even more generally, though. He says this, The ultimate purpose of First and Second Kings is to show that disobeying God's law inevitably brings punishment. Now, I want to suggest to you that those are both true. Those are truisms. But while those are themes in the book of uh, Kings, First and Second Kings, and they are good lessons for us to learn from, uh, I want to say they are not the main theme. I, although I, I could run with the, that theme, I, I could have fodder for countless sermons, uh, and I could try to stick, for instance, to comparing ancient Israel and the way things happen in ancient Israel to the behavior of modern America. It is very easy to go directly from ancient Israel and the kind of craziness that was going on in there, uh, there as they became especially more and more apostate, more and more idolatrous, and just go straight to our age, for instance. I could also talk about leaders Uh, I could talk about individuals. I could compare the behavior of uh, ancient Israelites to modern Americans, uh, even to to American Christians or Christians worldwide. But it is my conviction, I I don't think that's what God wants me to do. Uh, 
And I don't think that's the main thing. He wants us to learn from this particular book. I really don't. So let me open up the verse we just looked at to see what I think is the, is the greater theme that you and I should be taking from this, a much more important theme, really. Um, we, you remember we looked at King David. King David is found in First and, and Second Samuel. He's not, uh, he's not quite king in First uh, Samuel, but we, we meet him as the king in Second Samuel. We learn about his mighty deeds, but as we open up First Kings, it's kind of sad. Uh, we see him aged. We see him nigh on 70 years old. Now, he is a great leader. Uh, and we, we know that every nation in history, they've all wanted great leaders. Their, their lives are, are spent uh, one way or the other with the search for the perfect leader. They want a king, an emperor, a president, or a prime minister who is going to rule over that nation, who's going to rule well, he's going to rule justly, he's going to rule fairly. They want leaders. We all want leaders who are going to unify and encourage the people. We want leaders who will also advance the nation economically and militarily. We want also ethical leaders, men who will not use their positions solely to accumulate wealth and power to themselves, which they then misuse. We want also a leader who is well-spoken, a leader who can exhort, a leader who can encourage, a leader who leads from the front, who shows the way to go. We want a leader who brings also, when it comes to, to war, if the nation must go to war, we want a leader who brings us victory. And when it comes to the economy, we don't want a, a leader who's going to manage the decline. We want a leader who's actually going to bring prosperity. Unfortunately, and you can look to history and you'll find this to be the case. History has proven that in, in a fallen world like the one we live in, that kind of leader that I just spoke about that we all want... I hope we all want that kind of leader. No, I'm looking for a leader, actually, who's going to manage the decline, who's going to put me to sleep, you know, that kind of thing. We're not looking for that. But unfortunately, history has proven that in a fallen world, leaders, good leaders, are very hard to find. They are not thick on the ground, even in history books. Most leaders are mediocre at best. And plenty of nations have suffered under the rule of long lines of terrible rulers, one bad ruler following another. Happily, and there is a happily to that, good rulers, they're hard to come by, but, and bad rulers are more common, but bad rulers at least don't last forever. Term limits or their own mortality prevent them from going on forever and ever and ever. But time is a double-edged sword because while time takes away eventually bad leaders, it also removes good ones. And so even when a nation is blessed with a great leader, the problem is eventually the great leader dies or he leaves office or he grows too sick or too old to continue to reign effectively. And often the leader who follows that great leader isn't nearly as good as the good leader was. So we begin with that in mind. We begin our study of 1 Kings in the closing days of Israel's best earthly king. This is the king who all the other kings who followed him will be judged by. He is the standard, the gold standard for king. And so everybody else, as the book continues even, there's going to be a reference back to him. And that, that king, of course, is King David. 
Now, King David was great. He was a great king and a great ruler. He was not great, and we'll see this in the book, not simply because of his military victories, although he was often victorious in battle, or because the kingdom grew and grew. It doesn't incidentally grow to its largest size under his rule. It grows to its largest size under the rule of his son Solomon. Uh, But it's not, not great simply because it expanded. We are going to see that David was a great king because he was a man after the Lord's own heart. He loved the Lord and the Lord loved him. In fact, he loved the Lord because the Lord loved him first and put his spirit within him. He loved God. David loved God and God loved him. And because David loved God, he believed the promises of God. And while he did not keep God's word perfectly, as we read through 2 Samuel, we always get the sadness of chapters 11, 12, and 13. And we find out about how, unfortunately, David, well, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he had her husband Uriah put to death. And then we see also the way he mismanaged his own family, raising his sons not perfectly and so on. But, but nonetheless, he believed the promises of God and he did a better job of keeping the Lord's commandments than almost all of his descendants and certainly all of the kings of Judah and Israel that came after him. He was the one who loved the Lord the most and who kept his word the most. And that's why as we meet the other kings of Judah and then of Israel, we're going to see a pattern. The king is introduced, then the length of his reign is given, and then a comparison to David is drawn. I want to show you that. So, for instance, let's, let's, let's meet a bad king of Judah. Turn with me, if you would, ahead in 1 Kings to 1 Kings chapter 15. That's quite a bit ahead, obviously, I know. But we're going to meet a bad king, and we're going to find out what the book tells us made him a bad king. So, 1 Kings 15. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And incidentally, you're going to see, and sometimes it gets really confusing, you're going to see usually a reference, once there's a divided kingdom, there's going to be a reference to the king in the north, in the northern kingdom, his name was King Jeroboam in this case, and then they'll give us the king who's reigning in the south as well. So uh, it only really gets confusing when there's common names, you know, it's like uh, shouting David in this room because, you know, there's tons of people named David. They're all going to turn around. Uh, in any event, starting with First Kings 15, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father, David. So they say, this one, not at all like David. Therefore, bad king. Now, let's, let's meet, therefore, a good king of Judah. We don't actually have to go far by God's grace to find one. In fact, in many Bibles, it will be on the same page. Go down to verse 8, same chapter, 1 Kings 15. So Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And then they give some examples of the kind of things that Asa did that showed that he was a good king. And he banished the perverted persons from the land. And removed all the idols that his fathers had made 
Also, he removed Ma'aka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook of Kidron. So what happens when you have a good king is that true religion increases. It flourishes under his rule. And when you have a bad king, false religion, Canaanite religion, idolatry and all sorts of perversion flourish under his rule. That's going to be the marker. It's not going to be necessarily simply military success or economic success that's going to be marked. It's where was the king's heart? Was it inclined towards the Lord uh, as was David's heart or was it inclined towards evil? Was it inclined towards the world, the flesh and the devil as were the bad king's hearts? That's going to be the great divider. But here we're starting with the actual king of David, going back to 1 Kings 1. And we're we're meeting him, unfortunately, at the beginning of 1 Kings, at the end of his reign. He is old, old for the time. He's about 70 years old. And we read that he cannot get warm. Why can't he get warm? Well, I I know there's probably people who are older who will say, yeah, I know what what they're talking about there. But uh, as we age, our bodies become more and more sensitive to cold temperatures. There's a reason for that. That's because uh, of a decrease in our metabolic rate. We simply aren't, uh, we aren't functioning as well as we did when we were young. Our aging bodies aren't capable of generating enough heat to maintain our normal 98.6 degrees temperature. Also, our skin thins and the uh, fat deposits that kept us warm before, they also become thinner and we have this increased sensitivity. Our circulation also begins to slow down so the body can't, it's like a a central heating system and it can't get heat to uh, particularly to the extremities. So often your your fingers begin to feel cold and your toes begin to feel cold. Uh, Our blood vessels, they lose their elasticity and so the circulation slows down and we become cold people. Uh, And that's why people retire to Florida and not Minnesota as they get older. We, we seek warmer climates where we aren't feeling cold all the time. Now, this is happening to David, and they can't send him to Florida. It hasn't been discovered yet. So the servants are concerned. The king cannot rule in this condition. He is decrepit. So they come up with an idea. Let's warm him up. So they go searching for Abishag the Shunammite. Uh, well, they go searching for a young woman, and they find Abishag uh, the Shunammite. That means she was from the region of Shunam. Uh, She is a beautiful young woman, a a virgin. Now, lots of commentators at this point get into this bizarre speculation uh, that this was intended sexually. She was supposed to get him hot, that she's a hottie and and stuff like that. And and you're like, you guys spend too much time um, thinking about these things and moving on. (laughs) I I, I tend to agree with the commentators uh, who said that uh, no... This woman was supposed to be a nurse to him in his last years, and literally part of her function was her body heat was literally supposed to get him warm when his own body would not warm up. She was, uh, therefore, kind of a live-in nurse and a living hot water bottle, if I can put it that way. He would lie in the bed with him and hopefully get him warm. Uh, In any event, the text is careful to tell us that, uh, unfortunately, the plan failed, although she was able to take care of his physical needs. Uh, As he aged, she was not able to to get him warm, uh, and they make very clear to tell us, no, he he did not sleep with her. Um, We're being warned that the time is coming when David is going to die. Inevitably, he's moving towards that point. 
Now, here is the great lesson that we learn from just these few verses here. We have here a man who was not just a great leader, but the great leader of the United uh, Kingdom of Israel. And yet his time is coming to an end. It's a reminder that all of Israel's human political rulers, ultimately, they failed even in the end. Even the best, note this, even the best of mortal kings pass away. So, is there no hope for us? If all mortal kings someday, even the best of kings, will return to their maker, they'll all die. Is there no hope for us? And here's where I want to, to suggest to you, this is the great lesson of kings. That even the best of kings are men at best and that they all end up dying. There is no political solution to our problems. No purely political solution at least. And there are many people who think that there are. We live in an age where politics has almost replaced religion. There are people who, who take their, their political beliefs almost religiously. Abortion has become a sacrament for one group of people. On the other side, and I hate to say this, the Second Amendment is, is almost a holy thing. We act, and incidentally, I am, I am an AR-15 owner. I am not speaking against the Second Amendment, please. But nonetheless, it should not be an act of worship to recite that particular wonderful amendment to the US Constitution out loud. We are not a people who are going to be preserved from evil, and we need to know this by our own means. And as we have seen in our nation, we can have the Second Amendment standing firm and still gradually decline to a point where all manner of abomination are being, is, is being spoken of and done. We have places that exist solely to help single mothers who have crisis pregnancies. And what are we doing? We're vandalizing them, lighting them on fire, and we have senators speaking against them. We are a nation that can indulge in all sorts of evil while we still have, quote, our civil liberties intact. Politics is not going to save us as a nation. And certainly politics will not save our souls. It cannot save us ultimately. Human rulers may be able to affect our life here on earth a little in a good direction, and we hope that they will. But ultimately, what can a human ruler do for you in eternity? The answer is nothing. Nothing. David, as good a man as he was, could not help anybody after they died. He was not somebody who could get them into heaven. He could show them the right way and point them to the right people, but he could not get them into heaven. And ultimately, our needs at heart are spiritual. Our, at the heart, of the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, as many a man has said. And the wonderful good news is that the Lord had made provision for that as well. He had given a leader who was not merely mortal, and he had given promises to David that there would be a leader who would come from his line who would not be afflicted with the problem of passing away. It's a wonderful covenant that's made by the Lord with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 deals with this, this terrible disappointment that David has. He was hoping that he would be able to build the house of the Lord. But he was a man who had shed so much blood, the Lord says, no, you're not going to do it. Your son will build my house. But he gives him this promise. And if you want to just turn back one book from 1 Kings to 2 Samuel, we read this. When your days are fulfilled... And you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body. This is 2 Samuel 7, 12. Who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, not just for a time, but forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How on earth can a throne be established forever? How is it possible? I mean, if we're talking about merely the, the human throne ruling over Jerusalem, ruling over Israel as a nation, that, that went away a long time ago. But that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the king who would be set on Mount Zion, who would rule forever. He's making a reference to great David's greater son, not Solomon, but Jesus. And we see that's the reason why in Matthew and Luke, as they're setting out the genealogies, they, they trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ back to David. And ultimately, they'll go all the way back to Adam, but the fact that he's descending directly from David, King David, shows that he is the one whom the Lord had promised would reign forever. And this is something that's picked up in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then Matthew 20.31, we remember that uh, when the people saw Jesus, they cried out, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Their messianic hopes were, were caught up in him. Unfortunately, the people in Christ's time were expecting a king like David, a king for time. But what the Lord had sent was a king for eternity, a king who would reign forever. And happily, his apostles knew that. That's why they preached that David was gone, but Jesus would continue forever. The one who would sit on David's throne and reign over his people, not just Israel, but throughout the world forever. So in Acts 2, and starting with verse 22, you remember the setting here. This is, this is Peter the Apostle. He's preaching on Pentecost. He's preaching in Jerusalem. He's preaching to people who had helped to put to death Jesus. And you remember the sign that they had set over the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the high priests were very, very upset about that. They said, say not that he's Jesus, the king of the Jews. Say that he said he was Jesus, the king of the Jews. That he pretended to be such. But no, Pilate spoke better than he knew when he said, I've written what I've written. He wrote the truth. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And not just a king who came and went, who was the... Uh, the Fulfillment for a little time of some hopes and then they went away when he died, but rather the one who rose again and who reigns forever. He is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the world as well. In Acts 22, and then starting with verse 22, therefore we read Peter saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He's telling them this wasn't an accident. There's a sovereign Lord who ordained all these things to, to come to pass. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter goes on to say, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one we were waiting for. This is great David's greater son. This is the king who won't rule just for one short human lifetime. This is the king who will be established and who will reign forever. The one in whom you can put all of your hope and your trust, not just for politics, not just for a little while, but you can trust in him forever. The one who will never leave you. The one who will never forsake you. The one who never grows old and cold. The one who never dies again. The one who died once for all on the cross and now is risen and has taken care of your great problem. Not the Romans in Peter's time. That's what the Jews would have thought. Well, the Roman Empire is our big problem. Who's going to deal with that? That's not your problem. Our big problem is not our political enemies. Our big problem, brothers and sisters, is our own sin. Who will deal with that? Who can deal with that? What political ruler can pass legislation nullifying your sin? I know of none. Even if we didn't have, you know, uh, the filibuster and things like that, still, there is nothing that can take it away. Only the blood of Christ can wash away our sin. And only his righteousness can establish us in good stead. Only he has the power legally To put us right before God, the ultimate judge. Peter tells us that's what God intended. And David foreseeing that the one who would sit on his throne forever would come and he would not see corruption. He says, men and brethren, he can't have been speaking about himself. He died, he was buried, he saw corruption. But he was speaking of his great son, the one who would reign on Mount Zion. Not just merely the the city in Jerusalem. The one who would reign from the heavenly Zion, the, the symbol of the church who would rule over his people and who would be the great and good king forever. Him I declare to you, says Peter, and him I declare to you this day. And our need, our problem is the same as the need and problem of the people whom Peter was speaking to. How can we be saved? They knew it. In verse 37 of Acts 2, they cried out. Now when they heard this, the men were, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Jesus was sent into the world, the Savior. What did we do with him? We put him to death. We crucified him. As you said, Peter, we with our lawless hands did that great evil, that judicial murder. We put him to death. The very one who we said was our only hope. Now what are we going to do? 
Peter says, fear not. You remember he said, you took him with lawless hands. But he said, this was ordained of God. The only way that we could be saved was through the crucifixion. It was only by the sacrifice of his own son that the shedding of blood that takes away our sins could have taken place. God foresaw this. God set it up going all the way back to David and before him to the beginning of time and even before that into eternity past before time was time. The Lord had ordained Jesus would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, the one who was coming into the world. He's the king we need. He's the king who will rule forever. He's the king before whom every knee will bow. So let me put it this way, crassly perhaps, but truly, beat the rush. Bow before him now, kiss the sun before the time comes when you won't have a choice, when every mouth will be closed and every knee will bow and every tongue will then confess Jesus is Lord. I hope that's a confession you've already made and you've put your trust in him. And that like David, this is the amazing thing. My, you see in that psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, it's, it's a, how do you figure this out? How is it that David speaks of one who is his Lord, who's in between him and God, who's a mediator? He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. David saw the coming of his great son, the promised Messiah, and he put his trust in him. He believed the promises of God and he had the spirit of God dwelling within him and he was looking forward to the coming of Jesus, his redeemer. He sang, oh, sang of his redeemer, even in the Psalms, speaking of the one who would come and would redeem him. Is that the one in whom you put your trust or are you foolishly trusting in human leaders? Are you trusting in your own strength? I, I tell you, I mean, I live in a I live in a town where everybody except me is in great shape, as a general rule, as long as they're under 50. Man, we are amazing. But I have to tell you, everybody in this room, you may be in amazing shape. You may be able to do more push-ups and absolutely destroy the Army combat fitness test or even with the stupid leg things. That, and the, what do they do with the core now, the, the plank and all that? In any event, you can do that. I know you can do that. And you may secretly think you're the best. But this is the sad truth. Your strength is already ebbing away day by day. You are getting towards that point where one day you're going to be the one who's adjusting the thermostat up. And everybody else is like, we're dying here, Grandpa. Stop. Okay. It's 93 degrees in here. No, it's not. It's too cold. Give me another blanket. That'll be you one day. You don't believe it. But it'll be you if you live that long. One day you'll be complaining about how cold it is and everybody will be like, yeah, all right. Brothers, sisters, kids, the day comes when all of us age and our hands can't stay, save us. They certainly can't save us from what is to come. But we can prepare ourselves and we can avail ourselves of, of what we most need, which is salvation. I pray, therefore, that you would, while you still can, that you will bow the knee before the Savior, that you'll come to him, that you'll confess your need of him. You'll say, I don't need politicians. I don't need legislation. I don't need rules and regulations. What I need is a Savior. What I need is a king who doesn't die, a Lord who will open heaven for me. What I need is you, Jesus. And therefore, if you do that, well, you remember they cried out. What did Peter say? That when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They cried out. 
Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Those promises are to you as well. So while you're young, seize on the Lord. Remember your creator in the days of your youth and then serve him forever. You can do that in Christ. That's the wonderful good news. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I do thank you, Lord, that while no human leader, no merely human leader, even the best of them, can save our souls, you have made provision for our greatest need. You have sent your son Jesus into the world. And he truly was that son of David who is also the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and who establishes us as righteous, who makes us princes in the kingdom. We thank you so much, Father. Help us, O Lord, to place our trust in him. If there is any here who have not yet closed with him, I pray, Lord, that they would, they would tarry no longer, that they would not think that there's something they have to do first before they come to you. It's as ridiculous as saying, I can't take a bath, I need to get clean first. O Lord, please show them that the only way that they can have their sins purged is by simply surrendering to you and coming to Christ. Let him... Let him work in their hearts as only he can. Let the spirit change them, taking away the heart of stone and putting in its place a heart of flesh. Help us to stop being so stubborn and resistant. Help us to stop depending on ourselves, knowing that our our strength is passing away. Oh Lord, let us love Christ and let us be men.